all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Welcome to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika. And me, Maddie. listeners to Professionally Embarrassing. Again, we're sorry for the delay. I know this is becoming a bit of a recurring theme, but we are very busy, very important people um, who only do this as a bit of a side hustle so that we can try and support our day jobs as well. But bear with us because we will try and be more consistent next season, maybe not this season. We're back this week, unhelpfully, with two cases, both called Reese from the Court of Appeal, but they are both really interesting, and Maddie and I are super excited to be talking about them. I know I also have a whole host of recommendations and talks and reading recommendations for our listeners, so let's dive straight in, Maddie, with your case, Reese Parental Alienation, which has been causing quite a lot of buzz, not only on the usual lawyer Twitterverse, but also in the press. Yeah, it has. Yes, called Reese. You're right. It is in front of the president, Andrew McFarlane, which helps in terms of the substantive content of the judgment. The 21st of February is the day that it was released. And it, as you say, it's already caused some significant discussion. And the reason that it has done that is because it touches on a subject that we have also talked about on this podcast, but I'm sure anyone who's vaguely aware of family law will have seen in other places as well, which is the instruction of unregistered psychologists and the meaning of the word psychologist, what a psychologist is, and the appropriateness of an expert witness in family law proceedings, mostly, to be perfectly honest, within private law proceedings rather than public. This issue comes up a lot more in private law rather than public, but it is an interesting conversation with broader impact as well. So, we're going to have a look at it. Now, we did the first instance decision of this case in episode two of this season of the podcast. It was called F and M number three, I think, 2022. So if you're interested in the facts of the case, go back and listen to that, because I'm not going to go into any real detail about the facts of the case. Essentially, it involves two children who are now aged 13 and 11. Final orders were made in 2015, authorising that the children live with their mother, Contact broke down in 2018. The father made an application for enforcement and variation. And in an order dated the 25th of March 2020, during the second set of proceedings, there was extensive provision made for interim contact between the children and the father and provision for expert evidence for a psychologist or psychiatrist to inform the court as to the nature of the dynamics in the home and what was happening on the ground in terms of why the children were refusing to see their father. As a result of that order, the expert evidence order, an expert who's identified only in the judgment as Miss A was chosen to undertake the work in the summer of 2020. And her report, which was filed in October 2020, was clearly influential. She concluded that the children had been alienated against their father by their mother. And she considered that the eldest child showed signs of severe alienation and the younger sibling was on the same trajectory. Following on from that report, Her Honour Judge Davis, in the case that I just mentioned that we covered in episode two, ordered the removal of the children from their mother's care and directed that there should be no contact between the mother and the children pending a fuller hearing in October. 
In October, the judge ordered that the eldest child should weekly board at her school and have her home base with a relative and that the youngest child should live with the father and there was limited contact with the mother. There was then a final hearing in June of 2021, following an adjourned hearing in February 2021, which concluded that the children should move to live with their father and there should be a period of suspension of contact with the mother to allow for settling in, following which contact with the mother was to develop in a structured manner. So that was the end of the proceedings. Following on from the final hearing in June 2021, the mother applied for permission to appeal the fact-finding part of that judgment. So what the court did was made findings about things and then made a welfare decision in the same hearing. And what the mother did was apply for permission to appeal the fact-finding, saying that the judge was wrong to rely upon the report of Miss A, the expert, whom holds herself out as a psychologist and give diagnoses, despite not being qualified to do so. The judge was wrong to give any weight to her report, given that she does not meet the criteria in Part 25. In this regard, the judge completely failed to deal with the criticisms made on behalf of the mother of the expert and was wrong in the circumstances to accept the recommendations. That was the ground of appeal made following the final hearing. The appeal or permission to appeal came before Mr Justice Peel in the proposed challenge to the instruction of the expert. He said that that appeal was entirely without merit and dismissed it. There was a further hearing which took place following the fact-finding in June 2021 in February 2022, which dealt with a number of issues in terms of arrangements and welfare, and also made a Section 9114 order, I think following a number of applications made by both parents. At the February 22 hearing, the mother issued an application to reopen the fact-finding issues that had been determined in June 2021. So the mother said that she wanted to make an application to reopen the finding of fact and welfare determination to review the safety of the findings made on parental alienation in light of concerns about the significance attached to Miss A's opinion as set out in her assessment reports and oral evidence and its consequences. So she made an application under what we would call a REE application, so under REE 2019, to reopen findings made by the court, which is the three-stage test as set out in REE 2019 by Lord Justice Peter Jackson. So she made that application. The judge considered that application and dismissed it. She said that, you know, concerning the three-pronged test under RE, the court knew that there needed to be finality to the proceedings, that it had weighed up other relevant issues, not just Miss A's report, but also there is no reason to think that a rehearing of the issues would result in any different findings from the decision that the judge made a year ago. The issues were fully explored and there's no solid grounds for believing that the earlier findings require revisiting. That judgment is now the subject of an appeal again, which forms the judgment of RE-C. So there was a final hearing with a fact-finding element. Mother made an application to reopen the findings. That application was dismissed. Mother now appeals the court dismissing her reopening of the findings made in June 2021. Hope you're all with me. So that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of RE-C. The mother's appeal is against the decision to dismiss the application to reopen the findings, which is based on a number of grounds, primarily that the judge was wrong to determine the application without expert evidence as to Miss A's qualifications, and two, that the judge was wrong to hold that there was no new evidence or information indicating that the opinion of Miss A was unsafe, and finally, that the judge didn't apply FPR 2010-PD25B properly and had failed to have specific regard to criticisms of Miss A's work in the present case. Now, permission to appeal for this particular appeal was granted by Mr Justice Peel on the 15th of July 2022, not because the proposed appeal had a real prospect of success, but he said for some other compelling reason, namely that it was in the public interest for the court to consider the instruction of unregulated psychologists as experts in the family court in general and Miss A's instruction and role in this case in particular. So that was the remit under which the case came before the Court of Appeal. The appeal is opposed by the father, by the Guardian, 
but it is supported by the ACP, which is the Association of Clinical Psychologists. They take on a very active role in this judgment, and their role in the appeal is actually criticised quite heavily by the president. I'm not going to go into the whys and wherefores of it because I don't have enough time, but essentially the ACP were essentially taking on the prosecution of the appeal on behalf of the mother because they were very concerned about the role that this expert had played in relation to being a psychologist within the family court. So they take on quite a rigorous role in the appeal. So one of the interesting factors of this case is that ground two of the appeal on behalf of the mother and supported by the ACP is that there is has been new information available since the hearing of the case in June 2021 that means that the instruction of Miss A as an expert casts doubt on the safety of her recommendations. Now, you'll all be aware of this because we've talked about all of these things on the podcast before, but the things that the appellant points to in support of this proposition are the memorandum from the President of the Family Division, October 2021 on experts in the Family Court. We've talked about that. A quotation from a speech given by the President in Jersey on the 8th of October 2021, which supported the issuing of this guidance. The guidance issued by the ACP in December 2021 and the guidance issued jointly by the Family Justice Council and the BPS, which is the British Psychological Society. Taking each of the sources of these information in turn, the president goes through in the appeal the impact of these particular pieces of information on whether or not this expert was appropriate for the role at the time that she was involved in the case and at the time the court made the findings. So we know about the memorandum, which obviously says the family court needs to adopt a rigorous approach as to the admission of expert evidence, Practice Direction 25B, paragraph 4.1B, requires an expert to comply with the standards set out in the annex of the practice direction. These include requirements to have been active in the area of work, to have sufficient experience of the issues, to have familiarity with the breadth of current practice or opinion, if their professional practice is regulated by a UK statutory body, that they are in possession of a current licence, are up to date with CPD and have received appropriate training on the role of an expert in family courts. Psychologists are mainly regulated by the Health and Care Professionals Council, the HCPC. The Family Justice Council has issued guidance jointly with the British Psychological Society on providing expert reports in the family courts. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Where the expert is not subject to statutory registration, i.e. child psychologists or child psychotherapists, paragraph six of the annex identifies alternative obligations to ensure compliance with the appropriate professional standards. The president reiterated this guidance in the speech that he gave in Jersey on the 8th of October 2021 which is that a specific problem which is said to arise in cases of domestic abuse is the not infrequent counter-assertion that the person making allegations of abuse is themselves causing harm to the child by way of parental alienation. This is a complex and sensitive issue, and in the short term, available in this address, I seek to make one and one point only about it. Where the issue of parental alienation is raised, and it is suggested to the court that an expert should be instructed, the court must be careful only to authorise such instruction where the individual expert has relevant expertise. And he then re-refers to the guidance that he issued four days before the speech. The appellant also says there's further guidance from the ACP in relation to the protection of the public in the family courts, which is an extract from an executive summary describing the central thrust of the ACP's approach. So it says, in terms of psychologists, and this is important if you do any cases involving psychologists, in terms of psychologists, Only a practitioner psychologist currently registered with the HCPC, such as a clinical psychologist, can give a diagnosis or formulation or make recommendations about therapeutic interventions. Some, but not all, practitioner psychologists can make recommendations about capacity. ACP UK is aware of several cases in which psychological experts who are not HCPC registered have suggested inappropriate diagnoses and have made recommendations for children to be removed from their mothers based on these diagnoses. 
HCP UK wishes to support those instructing experts for the courts to understand the importance of using HCPC registered practitioner psychologists and is available for consultation on such matters. The court then looks at the guidance issued in May 2022 by the Family Justice Council and the British Psychological Society, psychologists as expert witnesses in the family courts in England and Wales, standard competencies and expectations. And this is the interesting bit, which I think people should be aware of and perhaps aren't. Statutory regulation for psychology in the UK was introduced in 2009, and the HCPC is a regulator of practitioner or registered psychologists. Practitioner psychologists who have the qualifications necessary to meet the stringent criteria for statutory regulation with the HCPC are registered with the HCPC with one or more protected titles. There are seven protected titles. Clinical psychologist, health psychologist, counselling psychologist, educational psychologist, occupational psychologist, sport and exercise psychologist, and forensic psychologist. In addition, the two generic titles of practitioner psychologist and registered psychologist are available to registrants who already hold one of seven specialist titles. These titles are protected by law. Anyone who uses a protective title must be registered with the HCPC. It is an offence for a person with intent to deceive to state that they are on the HCP register or to use a designated title to which they are not entitled or to say falsely that they have qualifications as a practitioner psychologist. An unregistered person may be committing an offence even if they do not use the designated title directly, such as describing the service they provide as clinical psychology or forensic psychology, as an example. And this is what the mother and the APC looked at as saying, this is the reason why the court should not have instructed this particular expert, because she is not one of these seven protected titles, and she's not registered with the HCPC. Now, what the president asks, which is the salient point, is, is there any law or particular reason why the court can't instruct someone who is an unregistered psychologist to undertake work, provided that they understand the remit of being a psychologist. Because we'll all know that there is no definition of expert for the purposes of family proceedings, and there is no definition of psychologist beyond the seven labels which have statutory protection. Now, this particular expert does not say that she's one of these seven protected characteristics. That would be a fraud and offence, because she isn't. And these concessions are followed by the following important concessions. Whether a person is capable of assisting the court by providing expert evidence is therefore a question of fact, not a question of law. Now, that's a really important feature because what the court is saying is this, that whether or not someone is capable of assisting the court by virtue of their own particular expertise is not a matter that is regulated in the same way as, for example, HCPC rules or BPS rules or ACP rules. So there is no definition of these two things and the court needs to be careful as to how it looks at what they're looking for the expert to do and how the expert can provide those services within this framework. So the president did ask the ACP, who are interveners in this appeal, for identification of any statutory instrument or formal regulation in support of the contention that Miss A is simply neither qualified nor trained to hold herself out as a psychologist or to advise on therapeutic intervention. They were unable to do that. So they were not able to identify a statutory instrument or formal regulation which would prevent Miss A from holding herself out as a psychologist, small p, or able to advise on therapeutic intervention. And so for that reason, it was not illegal for Miss A, this expert, to be instructed within these proceedings. And therefore, the question becomes, was it appropriate for her to be instructed at all? Now, a huge part of this appeal, which Malvika and I were just discussing, looks at the specific criticisms of this particular expert, why they should not have been instructed, and what was wrong with their work within this particular case. I'm not going to go into that, A, because it's very, very long, but B, because it's not particularly relevant to the general principles of what this judgment is saying. And what McFarlane says within the appeal is actually, it's not appropriate on a submissions-only basis 
for counsel to argue about the suitability and competency of an expert within family court proceedings in an appeal setting. So an appeal is not an appropriate place for the court to consider the essential fitness to practice or fitness to report of a particular expert in this way. So it declines to do that exercise, and in my opinion, probably rightly, although McFarlane seems to hint that there may be an appropriate forum for that in a different area, but that obviously remains to be seen. So what McFarlane goes on to say is that it is at the core of the mother's case on appeal and the ACP's submissions that Miss A is unqualified to call herself a psychologist, to conduct a psychological assessment, to act as an expert in the family court, and in particular to discharge the specific instructions given to her in this case. These were bold and firmly stated assertions that led the court to ask counsel at the first hearing to be taken to some authoritative document in support of this, the statutory instrument or regulation. They could not do so. And therefore, the principal element of the ACP's patchwork submissions is that only practitioner psychologists or those who are registered with the HCPC should be permitted to give evidence in the family court. That's not what the family court rules say. It's right that an individual who is not registered with the HCPC may not use one of the protected titles that I've set out, and if not chartered by the BPS, may not call themselves a chartered psychologist. This is very solid ground and provides a clear and reliable indication of expertise. Difficulty arises, however, from the fact that the title psychologist is not of itself regulated or protected. So you can call yourself a psychologist, small p, without needing to be chartered by the BPS or registered with the HCPC or one of the particularly protected titles. Therefore, when unqualified people refer to themselves as psychologists, this may create confusion from the public, other professions and the legal system. But unless people cross other boundaries, such as laws concerning misrepresentation of qualifications, deception and fraud, it is currently not illegal to do so. Now, what does McFarlane have to say about all of this? Looking at paragraph 86 of the judgment, which is where his comments on this start, it's titled Unregulated Psychologists as Expert in the Family Court, colon, Guidance. And he says this, before leaving these issues and turning shortly to the two remaining elements of the appeals, which I'm not going to deal with in this summary, this in some ways unsatisfactory hearing does provide the court with the opportunity to draw the recent guidance together and to flag up key points in clear terms. What follows, unsurprisingly, is not intended to change or amend what is said in the FJC BPS guidance or the President's memorandum. It draws where appropriate on the ACP guidance and on council submissions. But in doing so, the court is conscious that this material is generated by a single campaigning association and is not material emanating from regulating body or office holder official body within the family justice system. So there is no definition of expert in family court proceedings save for the circular procedural definition at FPR 2010 Rule 23 that an expert means someone who provides expert evidence. Certain statutory exceptions to the term are set out in the Children and Families Act Section 13.8. Expert evidence will only be permitted in children proceedings if the court is of the opinion that the expert evidence is necessary to assist the court to resolve the proceedings justly. An expert evidence may give factual evidence on a matter that he is not qualified to give evidence on, but his opinion will only be admissible on any relevant matter on which he is qualified to give expert evidence. There is no definition of qualified. Save for those individuals who are excluded from giving expert evidence by the Child and Family Act 2014, Section 13.8, the question of whether an expert is qualified to give expert evidence is a matter for the court in each individual case. The instruction and role of experts in the family court is already the subject of extensive coverage within Part 25 and Practice Direction 25A to D, in particular the duties of an expert, standard for expert witnesses, and so on. Certain categories of psychologist, for example clinical psychologist, have a protected title which may only be used by those who are validly registered under the regulations. 
the generic label psychologist is not protected and may be used by any individual, whether registered or not. A report by an unregistered psychologist calling themselves a psychologist may be called a psychological report. From the perspective of the court, and it may be from a wider public perspective, the open house nature of the term psychologist is unhelpful and potentially confusing. In other fields, particularly medicine, the court is used to a stricter regulatory scheme in which an individual can only call themselves by a professional title, for example, paediatrician or pathologist, if recognition of their expert status is confirmed. The court must therefore work with the current potentially confusing scheme, but must do so with its eyes wide open to the need for clarity over the expertise of those who present as psychologists who are neither registered nor chartered. Courts faced with a potential expert who presents a voluble, unstructured CV should at all times bear in mind that there is a clear and solid ground to be found in the registration scheme. A lesson plainly to be drawn from the present case is the need for clarity as to an expert's qualification and or expertise. Where a potential expert is registered with the HCPC is entitled to hold themselves out as an expert, this can be taken as sufficient qualification. Further detail in the CV may assist with the choice of one particular expert over another, but it is the kite mark of the HCPC registration which should resolve the question of qualification without more. A psychologist's CV should, therefore, prominently highlight whether they are HPC registered or not. It is incumbent on an unregistered psychologist to assist the court by providing a short and clear statement of their expertise. It is not, however, for this court to prohibit the instruction of any unregulated psychologist. The current rules and guidance are clear and contain an element of flexibility. The question of whether a proposed expert is entitled to be regarded as an expert remains one for the individual court. Therefore, the court agrees that there is a need for rigour during the process of identifying and approving an expert for instruction in the family court. Given the potentially confusing use of title psychologists, the need for due rigour is underscored. In the present case, evidence of a lack of rigour arises from the court indicating its initial order is to either a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It is not necessary to do more than state that plainly there is a significant difference between the two. The difficulties that have arisen in these proceedings, where much time has been taken up at first instance and on appeal in attempting to evaluate Miss A's qualifications to discharge her instructions, indicate that work should be done to assist parties and the court at the initial stage of choosing an expert by establishing a template into which the basic qualifications of any psychologist should be entered. The aim of the template will be for readers to see at a glance whether an individual is currently registered with the HCPC or a chartered psychologist or not. Further information displayed shortly and clearly should identify any formal qualifications post-held and published work. If, on investigation by the FJC, the three-tier structure controlled by the publishers of assessment tools is seen as a valid indicator, that too should be included. Such a template might include some easily understood traffic light indication of expertise. A template of this nature would, I believe, greatly assist courts in divining the basic level of expertise of a potential expert witness. It would remain open to the court to instruct any person who it considers is capable of discharging the role, but particularly where a proposed psychological expert is unregistered, the court should be on notice to the need to look more carefully at the underlying evidence of appropriate expertise. So there you are, some more guidance about psychological instruction within the court and the need for both rigour and, I think, caution in relation to unregistered psychologists. Malvika, what do you think? I think that for a lot of people, that judgment, this sort of highly anticipated judgment is going to be a bit wah, wah, wah. And I don't know if that's necessarily fair because I think a lot of non-lawyers in particular are being critical of the Court of Appeal for not giving sweeping guidance, which I think would probably fall outside the remit of the Court of Appeal. The sort of guidance that people might have been expecting about the appropriateness of unregistered, unregulated, in quotation marks, experts, is probably the role of Parliament. It's probably the role of 
statute and the Court of Appeals role in this context was very limited. It was dealing with this particular case, this particular set of circumstances. And when I knew that the judgment was being appealed, I wasn't particularly expecting the appeal to succeed. I was excited for what I thought the Court of Appeal might be willing to say in terms of further guidance, but I didn't really see any obvious errors in, in the judgment of Her Honor Judge Davies. So I think that that is probably about as far as the Court of Appeal can go. And what that is, is to effectively restate the law as we know it, which is, of course, you've got to be scrutinising experts when you're considering who to instruct under Part 25. Of course, that has to be a rigorous exercise where you look at their CVs and their experience and consider whether or not they're appropriately qualified to deal with this particular issue. So if you hear any clattering in the background, my niece has wandered in and has decided to make a bit of a commotion and has spilt my can of coke all over herself. So what I was saying is that I don't think it's a particularly exciting judgment and maybe it's not exactly what people expected or hoped for. But I think, in fairness to the Court of Appeal, that's probably about as far as it could go. Yeah, and it is actually very helpful for practitioners because I do sometimes think we fall into a trap of not looking properly at who we're instructing, particularly this order that says either a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I mean, blatantly, the two are very different and address very different things. And it should be the role of us and those who instruct us to make sure that the expert that's been appointed, A, either is or doesn't need to be appropriately qualified, B, is or doesn't need to be regulated, and C, is able to actually discharge the instructions. The court says, look, we can instruct whoever we want within the remit of psychologists in this particular instance, but it still needs to be someone appropriate. And if you want someone properly qualified, don't appeal after they've done it. Check before they're appointed. I think that's got to be the message. That's the message I'm getting from McFarlane. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think we've all become a bit lax today's call when it comes to the instruction of experts, letters of instructions that are sort of copied and pasted from templates and aren't tailored to the circumstances of the case. I've often seen experts proposed and then accepted by the court because it's word of mouth and the court knows who they are and, and CVs aren't actually provided and scrutinised. So I completely agree with you that I think we've all become a little bit complacent when it comes to expert instructions. And this is a, a good cautionary tale in put in the effort to scrutinise the expert at the outset, not after the event. Okay, moving on to another RE-C. I believe it's RE-C bracket surrogacy consent. It is indeed a complete change of subject from me. The leading judgment was handed down by Lord Justice Jackson, and it concerned an appeal against a parental order, which was made in respect of a baby who in this judgment is referred to as C. And the person bringing the appeal was his I'll call her the gestational mother, the woman who carried him. And she acted as a surrogate for the respondents to this appeal and appealed on the basis that she didn't give free and unconditional consent to the making of a parental order. And the respondents to this appeal argue that the consent was given, but even if it wasn't, the parental order should still have been made. So before I dive into this case, some basics around surrogacy. Surrogacy is legal in the UK. When the child is born, the surrogate, the gestational mother, will be the legal parent of the child. But after birth, the intended parents to whom the surrogate is giving the child apply for a parental order to transfer legal parenthood to them. So the background to this is that the parties met several years ago and the appellant offered to act as a surrogate for the respondents. A surrogacy agreement was signed, artificial insemination took place using the appellant's egg and the second respondent's sperm, and the appellant became pregnant. 
Now, several months into the pregnancy, the relationship, very unfortunately, between the parties deteriorated. And the appellant said she was becoming more and more attached to the baby and she felt underappreciated. And the respondents say that she was keeping them at arm's length during the pregnancy. C was born in September 2020 and was handed over to the respondents, to the intended parents, seven hours after birth. And two months later, they applied for a parental order. Now, this application is governed by Section 54 of the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act. And the provision at the heart of this appeal is Section 54, subsection 6. And that provision says that the court must be satisfied that the woman who carried the child has freely and with full understanding of what is involved agreed unconditionally to the making of the parental order. So what happened is that during these court proceedings in respect of the application for a parental order, the appellant returned the acknowledgement form saying she didn't consent to the making of the parental order, that she opposed the application. So CAFCAS, as is usual in these sorts of cases, appointed a parental order reporter who filed a report saying that she couldn't recommend that an order be made because the appellant hadn't consented because she wanted to keep her parental responsibilities to allow her to have legal rights to spend time with C. I'm going to skip through some of the background to the hearing, which is the subject of this appeal. That hearing was before her on a judge board in Saker. And ahead of that hearing, the appellant filed a statement saying she always thought that she would consent to the parental order, but then she developed unexpected feelings for the child for C and had anticipated being a significant figure to him. But now she feels pushed out. So she says she'd agree to a parental order being made, but on two conditions, that a child arrangements order was made providing for monthly contact, and a prohibited steps order was made preventing the respondents, the intended parents, from moving without her consent. Now, any keen listeners' ears should have perked up then, if you listened closely to my recitation of section 54, subsection 6 earlier, namely the requirement for the surrogate to agree freely, with full understanding, and unconditionally to the making of a parental order. So what happened at this hearing before Her Honour Judge Gordon Sager in, in August 21 is that the hearing was all of 22 minutes. The Respondents Council invited the judge to make a parental order on the basis of the appellant giving consent. Now, Maddie, just to shake things up this episode, I am going to ask you to do a little bit of role play with me here. I've sent to you the transcript which has been set out in the judgment. I'll be the judge. You be the appellant. All right. Miss A, that's the appellant. Miss A, Miss Maxwell has outlined the position to me, and as I think you probably know, there are a number of matters in the statute, section 54, that I have to be satisfied about. And one of those, Miss Maxwell has rightly reminded me, is that you freely and with full understanding of what's involved agree unconditionally to the making of the order. If you only agree to the making of the order if there's a child arrangements order, then that would obviously not be freely and unconditionally given consent. The other matters in the statute are all dealt with amongst the papers, in particular, and also Mrs Chapman's report, so I don't think any of those cause me difficulty in making the order. The only one that does is the consent, because although I understand there's an agreement that there will be contact, and I will be asked to make a child arrangements order, I can't do that as a condition of making the parental order. I can only make the parental order if you freely consent and without conditions. So first of all, does that make sense to you what I've just said? I know sometimes for a non-lawyer, it gets a bit convoluted. You're nodding. So that's helpful. Thank you. Then I suppose, first of all, is there anything you want to ask me? And then is there anything you want to say in response, as it were? Thank you, Your Honour. There is nothing I want to ask you. But in terms of the condition, the unconditional consent, 
I think I would be lying if I said that I unconditionally consent to it because it is I would like to CC and so I am making the parental the consent on that I CC if I don't unconditionally give it because I'm fearful that I would won't have time to spend time with C I would like to CC and so I'm making the parental the consent on that I CC if I don't unconditionally give it because I am fearful that I won't have time to spend time with C and so that's why I can't quite unconditionally consent However, I do believe it is in all of our interests to move on with our lives and to kind of start rebuilding our relationship again. And I do feel that having a child arrangements order is best for all of us, along with a parental order being made. But I couldn't lie and say that I do give my consent unconditionally, if that helps, Your Honour. Well, it is very clear, and I fully understand what you're saying. It doesn't help me, and that is not a criticism of you. It doesn't help me get over the legal obstacle. Let me look at it a different way, and please let me be very clear, I am not trying to put any pressure on you at all, because that would be wrong, because the whole point is that I make an order only if everybody consents. I cannot make a child arrangements order in this particular proceedings, probably for a very good reason, because if it was part of the issues, then it probably would not be freely consented to, the judge then goes on to say. So in terms of trying to reassure you, I'm told that application would not be opposed, you can make it orally once I've concluded the making of a parental order, but I cannot make the parental order unless you do consent to it. And if you don't consent, and again, I'm not saying this in any way to put pressure on you. Sometimes it may sound a bit like that. But of course, if you don't consent, you will all be in this limbo moving forward until somebody attempts to make a different application, which obviously the applicants may do, but I cannot adjudicate on that in advance. So we're in a slightly difficult position. I think you consent to the concept that the applications are, as it were, sees parents, and that is recognised in law. I think the issue is one of concern about the way forward for contact. But unless I have you unconditionally consenting, I think we can't move on from this limbo. So I'm not try to think about what I've just said for a minute. And while you're thinking about it, I'm going to go to Mrs Chapman to see if she would like to add or say anything, because I think apart from this difficulty, she feels that the criteria are met. But I just want to check with her. This is Malvika again. The judge then turned to Mrs Chapman, who confirmed that the appellant was happy with the parenting that C was receiving, but that she didn't want to consent because she wanted a legal right to spend time with C and was scared about having no contact. And then the judge returned to the appellant for these very important exchanges. So, Miss A, we're in the position that as a matter of law, and also considering C's welfare, I think all of us agree that a parental order is the right thing for him. Everybody agrees that it's right for him to see you and to know you, but it's just coming back to the original question. So having heard what's been said, what's your thinking now? Then the only way forward is for me to give my unconditional consent, Your Honour. I'm sorry? I will provide my unconditional consent. And you're quite sure about that? I don't see that there is any other way for us to move forward without it. Well, I think that was the right decision. And I think that is extremely helpful for everybody, for all of you. And perhaps most importantly, of course, for C. I'm very grateful to you and I expect the applicants are as well. So what I will do is I will make the parental order. Then in terms of a child arrangements order, now that the parental order has been made, everybody agrees that it is right for Miss A to have contact. And under the Children Act, you can make an application or I can treat an oral application as having been made. And given the amount of information I have about all of you, I don't need you to go through the normal process of getting inquiries from Kafkas because obviously I already have that information from Mrs. Chapman. So I would be content to make a child arrangements order. And Miss Maxwell has said that the agreed way forward is every six weeks. I appreciate there'll be a little bit more detail to this, but every six weeks for a day, holidays and Christmas. And so that is her position. So from your side, Miss A, is that agreed by you as the way forward? It is, yes. 
So snapping out of our role play now, Maddie, thank you very much to my glamorous assistant for helping me with that. After that very polite but somewhat concerning exchange, the court made a parental order, a lives with order in the respondent's favour and a spends time with order in favour of the appellant, with C spending a weekend day with her every six weeks and two additional weekend days to celebrate his birthday and Christmas. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the next day, the appellant then emailed the respondent solicitors and said, I felt I was pressured to consent and I only really provided conditional consent. So between September and December 2021, the appellant had contact and then it seemed contact didn't take place in January. In February, the respondents, the intended parents, applied to vary or discharge the child arrangements order. And several days later, they wouldn't permit contact between C and the appellant. So clearly issues arose around contact pretty quickly. The appellant indicated that she would seek permission to appeal what would now be out of time. On the recommendation of CAFCAS direct contact, between C and the appellant was suspended pending assessments. C was joined as a party, a guardian was appointed, and in July 2022, nearly a year after the hearing that's the subject of this appeal, Mrs Justice Tice granted permission to appeal out of time in respect of the parental order. So the two grounds of appeal were these. Firstly, that the court was wrong to make the order because the appellant's consent was conditional on the making of a child arrangements order. And secondly, the court was wrong to make the order because the consent was not provided freely. So counsel for the appellant argued that the judge unintentionally placed pressure on the appellant. They said, look, when she set out her position, the matter should have ended there, either with the application for the parental order being dismissed or adjourned. But instead, the judge started talking, as the listeners heard, about the parties being in a difficult position, about the parties being in limbo, that there's this legal obstacle to overcome. The appellant was alone. She was unrepresented. We're told in the judgment that by the end of the hearing, she was crying. So her counsel, who's a very experienced silk, argued that the requirement for free and unconditional consent is fundamental. Parliament, in drafting that provision, could have said consent conditional on contact is sufficient, but it didn't do so. It's worded in a very specific way. On behalf of the respondents, it was argued that the judge was entitled to say the appellant had given free and unconditional consent, that twice in the hearing the appellant had said she was giving unconditional consent, that the judge had characterised the issues very neutrally when she was having that exchange with the appellant, and the respondents also raised welfare concerns, namely that C had lived with them, his whole life and if the order was set aside while the first respondent would have parental responsibility pursuant to the lives with child arrangements order they wouldn't have a legal relationship to see and their counsel went so far as to submit that the statute allowed the court to dispense with consent where the child's welfare requires it so miss basley king's counsel for the appellant argued in response that Setting aside the order wouldn't interfere with the rights of the respondents. The first respondent would retain their parental responsibility through the child arrangements order. The second respondent remained the legal father. Even if there was an interference with C and the respondent's Article 8 rights, it would be justified as it's in accordance with the law. It pursues a legitimate aim, i.e. to protect surrogates and women more generally, and it's necessary in a democratic society. So it falls within the margin of appreciation left to states in this area. So you studied law at university, these are the basics you probably learned in public law. Importantly, the appellant's counsel, Ms. Basley King's counsel, disagreed that the statute could be read in such a way that you could dispense with consent on welfare grounds. So the Court of Appeal frames the issues in this way. First of all, did the appellant give free and unconditional consent? Secondly, if not, 
does the convention require the court to dispense with her consent? And finally, if we say no to both those questions, what order do we make? And perhaps unsurprisingly, the Court of Appeal finds that she did not give free and unconditional consent. They noted that this was a remote hearing, that she was alone. She found her position on consent being represented as the only obstacle to the court reaching a resolution. And she was addressed at some length by the judge. And while the judge was motivated by C's best interests, the welfare assessment had nothing to do with the issue of consent. And the fact that the order was built on shaky foundations was obvious because of the disappointing outcome afterwards with all the contact breaking down. The Court of Appeal found that the appellant's consent was given on the promise of a child arrangements order. And just because she kept saying, I'll give my unconditional consent, that didn't actually reflect the reality on the ground. The Court of Appeal then goes on to reject the suggestion that was being put on behalf of the respondents that they have a power to dispense with that consent in the interest of the child. And the court says the right of a surrogate not to provide consent is a pillar of the legislation and the rights of the respondents and C are not violated by the setting aside of the order. And the ECHR does not require the parental order, even without valid consent, to be left in place. So turning to that third limb, the final question, the court allowed the appeal, dismissed the application for a parental order. And they said the legal mechanism for C being brought up by the respondents whilst having contact and the issue of contact itself fell outside the scope of the appeal. So they don't deal with that in the judgment. So that's Reese surrogacy consent. What do you think, Maddie? Oh, I have so much to say about this. I mean, I need to distill my thoughts into two things. One, I think this decision is stupid. And two, unfortunately, I think it's also right. So it's very frustrating for me because I'm a very, very big supporter of surrogates. I think they are necessary and I think they are important and I think they play a very fundamental role in the equalisation of queer and LGBTQ families or reproductively challenged families to have a right that most people take for granted, to have a right that is so, so important to a lot of people, which is a biological connection to a child that you may not be able to achieve on your own. That is something that heterosexual people get the opportunity to have without without thinking about it a lot of the time and can take that right whenever they wish to do so. And it's a very important thing that connects us all and is the reason that, that family law exists, right? So I'm very, very big on surrogacies being available and the availability of science and technology to allow LGBTQ families or families who can't have children to have their own biological children. I'm a big proponent of that. I do not accept that the rules or the laws in England go far enough to protect LGBTQ plus families from discrimination, direct discrimination about biological reproductive rights. And I've said that for a long time. And I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. And for that reason, I think this decision is very insensitive to the reality of surrogate and families who employ surrogates and use surrogates. I think it could have gone a lot further in outlining those issues and it doesn't. Um, and that frustrates me. But two things I want to say. The first is parental responsibility is different to a parental order. Parental responsibility stops when a child is 18. So if a child arrangements order is made for a child that is biologically yours, your legal link to that child stops when they are 18, which means there is no succession rights. There is no ongoing family ties. There is no sort of next of kin medical or succession, all those kind of things that come with adult families. Those things are legally severed at the age of 18. A parental order does not do that. A parental order guarantees those rights for life. So I don't accept that parental responsibility is the same as a parental order. In fact, it's very, very different. And in the interest of a child for the rest of their lives, I think 
the court should have been much clearer about the impact and consequences of parental responsibility as it lives with versus parental orders. Two, I don't accept that the court can't dispense with the consent on welfare grounds because they dispense with the six month time limit, which is a statutory requirement in loads of cases. There was one last year where the child was over the age of 18 and the court made a parental order because it wasn't applied for within the first six months. That's a very clear statutory requirement that the court went against and flexed and moved and said, fine. I agree that consent is a slightly thornier issue. And I do agree that there is some needs to be some consideration for the humans at the end of this and the women, particularly at the end of this, who have carried these children. Nonetheless, I am very disappointed in this decision. I think it was insensitive and I think it was stupid. Unfortunately, I don't think the court had another option. I think it would have been slightly nuclear for them to say that this could be bent and and pushed to such an extent. But I do think it's an enormous interference with the Article 8 rights of this family and particularly with this child and the child has lost something very, very significant. And that is a shame. Yeah, I think when we read cases like this, there is always this tension, isn't there, between wanting to validate non-traditional families, reproductively challenged families, LGBTQ plus families, and also wanting to protect the rights of the surrogates who are unfortunately in a very vulnerable position because the law as currently drafted doesn't offer a great deal of regulational protection for surrogates. It, it almost, yes, surrogacy is legal, but beyond that, the court sort of leaves it up to the parties themselves to sort it out between themselves. And I think that it's a very tricky balance to strike between of course, wanting to recognise that a surrogate inherently puts themselves in a vulnerable position by offering their body and their womb to facilitate this whole process. And it's not as easy as simply sort of detaching your emotional connections to this child with what you're doing, but also wanting to offer some protection and validation for non-traditional family structures. And I think that Parliament has been struggling for some time to try and and strike that balance, which is why you end up with a lot of this case law, which is is trying to make the best of a bad situation and of a statutory framework that is leaving the courts to try and work it out themselves. But I also agree with you. I don't think the decision is wrong because I think it's within the scope of what the Court of Appeal could actually do. But I think it highlights this ongoing discussion we've had on this podcast about the the fitness of purpose or you know how fit for purpose surrogacy law is in this jurisdiction, which is it probably isn't and it needs urgent review. Yeah, one of the things that I would like to see in my sort of career or lifespan as a barrister is change to Section 54 because there are so many elements to it that are not fit. for. I mean, the six-month time limit is basically dead now because there's so many cases that say you can bend it and flex it and make it work for families, even though Parliament haven't changed it. So that's basically gone. The reasonable expenses thing, I mean, we all know that that's bent and flexed all the time surrogates get paid for all sorts of you know reasonable things that the court endorsed and as they should you know it's a very difficult childbirth is dangerous you know I get that it's fine I completely accept that but the court bend that all the time in published judgments so really this is something that the court has been dealing with quite well in and of itself for a number of years and allowing parents and families to flourish and children to flourish in a way that is permanent and legal in a way that parental orders can only do and and then you end up when it goes wrong you end up with situations where parents are adopting their own children or having child arrangement orders that aren't appropriate. And it causes real and long-lasting permanent damage to families when you get this wrong. And those cases are very few and far between, thank God. But they are sad and they are devastating for parents who are not able to have their own children. So yes, it needs reform. If I could do it myself, I would. Maybe I'll write to the Law Commission. But this is a good topic for people applying for pupillage. What area of law in England would you change? Because mine would be this one. So what are your recommendations, Maddie, for this podcast? 
I have a list as long as my arm because it's obviously been a while since we recorded our last podcast and I have been on top of my CPD this year. Wicked. Well, mine's very short. Mine is just a reminder to everyone who is about to go through pupillage interviews that there are loads and loads of resources out there for pupillage interviews. The deadline's passed for applications. People will be waiting for interviews. There's so many resources out there. Middle Temple have a podcast called the Pupillage Podcast, which I've heard very good things about. There are mentorship schemes from Bridging the Bar, Them Is, Women in Criminal Law, Women in Family Law, I believe, Combar and the Bar Council. There are pupillage reports on lots of chambers' websites about numbers for pupillage, questions, data, anything like that for any nerds who like to look at data and applications numbers. There are a huge number of blogs and websites, lawcareers.net, chamber student, pupillage and how to get it. Our podcast did, I think, a very good episode about getting pupillage that we get a lot of good feedback on. So listen to that. There's so much out there. There is no excuse not to be so prepared this year for your interviews. You all deserve to do fantastically and there's lots of people willing to help. So please do check all of those resources out. Can I just say I haven't heard anyone use the term wicked unironically since about 2008, but I'm really glad that you're bringing that back. What is your recommendation? Well, what's your list of recommendations for us? So... I'm going to start off with Tortoise Media Slow Newscast's latest offering, which is called Snatched, A Mother's Quest to Find Her Children. And the presenter is journalist Louise Tickle, who we've talked about on this podcast, for another pod well-known in family law circles, my colleague on the Transparency Project. And she narrates the rather harrowing account of a mother who is given a pseudonym in the podcast, whose children are abducted by their father and taken to the United States. And she spends months, the mother, trying to work out where these children are with very little assistance from the American authorities and eventually secures their return, but not without spending tens of thousands of pounds in the process. And the podcast is a not so veiled critique of the approach of the family courts in dealing with this family and the protection or lack thereof offered by the family court to the mother and the children against a background of the court having made findings of domestic abuse against the father. Now, Maddie and I are the first to admit that the system in which we work is far from perfect, and there are a number of systemic issues which have resulted in really disappointing outcomes for families. The system works sometimes, and it doesn't work at other times. And as Lucy said on the last episode that we did, we aren't here to do PR for our job. So I'm more than happy to recommend this podcast episode, which has some very, very valid criticisms of the family justice system, and I think is really, really important to listen to, particularly for practitioners, because I think that it's always good for us to be self-aware and to recognise what we should be doing to make a flawed system better. Then my next recommendation is by my friend Melanie Bettier-Samuels. Her podcast is called Family Law and Lattes. Now, this is a little bit of a self-serving plug. But early last year, my book co-author, Rebecca Cross, and I were interviewed by Mel about our book about Practice Direction 12J and domestic abuse in private law children proceedings. I completely forgot that we ever recorded this episode, and I listened back to it a few weeks ago. I think, if I do say so myself, that it's quite a helpful intro to the subject for anyone starting out in practice, anyone wanting a bit of a refresher. It's also obviously just an encouragement for you to buy my book which I think that I talked about on a previous episode and I've included a discount code as well. So have a listen to that. But I also listened to another one of Mel's podcast episodes on relocation with Peter Burgess of Burgess Me. Again, a super interesting summary episode for newbies to the area or helpful refresher for more experienced practitioners. But I really rate Melanie's podcast. It's very accessible. It's not packed with legalese. So I think it's a really sort of helpful, accessible way to get your CPD. And then, 
completely changing the tone of my recommendations. I absolutely devoured the second in Gary Bell Casey's Elliot Rook series. Now, I don't know if you've heard of this, Maddie. The second book is called Postmortem. Gary Bell is a silk at number five chambers. He's teamed up with Scott Kershaw to create a crime thriller series where the lead character is a silk with an unconventional past. Now, I get the impression that quite a lot of the art imitates life in that Elliot Rook, like Gary Bell, is from a small mining town in the Midlands. He finds himself on the wrong side of the law. Gary Bell has been very open about how he ended up in prison for conspiracy to defraud. Elliot Rook, like Gary Bell, ended up spending periods sleeping rough before making it to the bar. Gary Bell has spoken about sleeping rough at various points in his life, even during his unpaid first six of pupillage. So I will say the series is totally far-fetched, and Elliot Rook definitely should have been struck off a number of times. And I don't know how he has the time to do a lot of work, given he's playing amateur sleuth most of the time with his trusty sidekick, who's a pupil in chambers called Zara. But it is so much fun. And I gobbled up both books in the series, so I'm really looking forward to the next offering. So if you want a little bit of a a lighthearted fiction read at the end of a long working day, have a look at that. My tweet of the week, I want to ask you about because I think it's funny it is from Amy Aspinall at Amy Family Law out of interest how do you pronounce the acronym for a first hearing dispute resolution appointment and she's got a poll and I'm going to tell you the answer but you have to tell me which one you use first I'm sure we've had this exact tweet or someone else who's used this exact same tweet subject before it might have been Jack Harrison and my conclusion was for Hedra I am anti-fudra and FHDRA, I mean, quite frankly, no one has the time to keep rolling that off their tongue. I'm an actually, I'm, I say FHDRA because I used to say for Hydra and I got told off by a judge and now I say FHDRA. I have an addition to this, which is from me, which is what do you call first hearing in financial remedy proceedings? <laughs> uh, depends on my mood. First appointment, probably. Correct. So I was also told recently by a finance practitioner that there is no such thing as an FDA and it should be called a first appointment. So a little bit of trivia for you all there. For future reference. I mean, I think quite frankly, if anyone is correcting your pronunciation of anything, it's, you know, telling you off for saying sweat instead of social work evidence, get a life, you know what we're talking about. We've got other things to worry about. And also just uh, out of interest, the number one winner on Amy's poll was Fedra. So that's apparently what everyone's saying. So for Hydra or for Hedra doesn't feature. What's your tweet of the week? I really need to get off the Shelley Glaster Young train as <laughs> since I recommended her tweet last time as well and I know she loved that I said that she tweets some bangers and that's going to go on her headstone at some point but she really does tweet some bangers and I was just scrolling through Twitter as you were talking and it popped up at the top of my feed and I thought you know what I really do want to talk about this I'm going to and I don't care how many times we've made Shelley tweet of the week anyway she is quote tweeting a FLBA tweet about a workshop on applying for silk which friend of the pod, Lucy Reed, was also helping with, and she quote tweets that, and she says, K and C are officially the most expensive letters in the alphabet. £2,300, including that, to apply. £4,000, including that, if you're successful. I don't think anyone ever saw this on my horizon, but holy diversity issue, Batman. I know. Bad, isn't it? I saw that as well. Shocking. Yeah, I mean, the process of applying for silk, as we heard from... Lucy last time already sounds pretty bloody tortuous but come on £6,300 plus £6,300 including that that's taking the piss I also saw I think when the 
Silks were announced this year. Again, congrats to you all. Someone said that the people who organise it, the Silk Committee, are actually in profit. So they're taking all this money every year and they're not actually spending it to meet their income, which I think is not very good. And they should maybe think about that. No. And it's probably going to lead to an overrepresentation of barristers from certain areas of the bar, which are traditionally better paid. Maybe criminal practitioners are probably going to struggle in particular to meet the financial demands of applying for silk. We don't want any really, really well-deserving talent to be turned away. I mean, the same sort of diversity hurdles that the bar encounters at every stage of practice, even at the junior end, it really shouldn't be popping up again at the silk end. I mean, come on. I completely agree. Something hopefully that we may see change in our careers as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed that episode. It was really interesting. And the Battle of the Reese's, I'm sure, will continue. And we will see you all for episode eight in a couple of weeks' time, or maybe a bit longer. Bye, everyone.